So it is uh, August 17th, 2014. Our message today is called Pro-Right Choice. Pro-Right Choice. I am not pro-choice. I think people should have to finish that sentence. When they say it, you should say, what does that mean? Pro-choice to what? To kill a baby? If people have a hard time finishing the sentence because it sounds elegant to say you're pro-choice. It sounds murderous, which it is, to say pro-choice to kill a baby. We are pro the right choice. Everybody has a choice in every situation. That choice is a divine gift from our God. The fact that he did not make you a robot, an automaton, the fact that he gives you the ability to choose is a divine investment that should be used in the right way. In the Bible, the word choice is bahar. Now, bahar is not such a hard word to say, not such a hard word to remember. And I put its meaning on the screen for you. A verb whose meaning is to take a keen look at, to prove, to choose. It denotes a choice which is based on a thorough examination of the situation, not an arbitrary whim. When you make a choice in the Bible, it's not simply flipping a coin. It is, I've examined it, and this is what my heart chooses, and therefore I'll take responsibility for my choice. Amen? Would we not be in a better world if people took responsibility for the choices they made? One thing that I've learned is the national pastime is not baseball. It is transferal of the blame. It is not my fault. It's their fault. And when you go speak with whoever they are, it is someone else's fault. And thus, it just continues to roll on downhill. This has been going on since Adam in the garden. But I would like to show you the first choice in the Bible. The first occurrence of the word Bahar is in Genesis 6, starting in verse 1. Say there when you're there. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. This is Benai Ha Elohim, sons of God, saw that the Benot Ha Adam, daughters of men, were beautiful, and they bahar any of them that they wanted. They chose. They carefully examined and they chose. Friends, we won't teach on that subject today, but suffice it to say some choices that you didn't make still affect you. Anybody live with a teenager? None of you. Come on now. You're not going to talk to me today? If you live with a teenager, you know very well that if they run over your neighbor's trash cans, it affects you. wasn't a choice you made, but it still affects you. My parents often got phone calls from lots of places. My daddy became the principal of the school that I was his first suspension at. Uh, later, Wade took over that position long after I was gone. I would just like to say that choices affect people that are around you. They always do. My father chose, my other father, my birth father, chose to neglect his responsibilities. That affected everybody in the house. He chose to be subject to alcohol. That affected everybody in the house. Those choices have far-reaching ramifications. But this particular choice is more indicative of a heavenly war. We won't go there, but the second epistle that Peter wrote, 
says that these guys have been held responsible for their choice. They're in jail. Even someone else that has been judged for their choice can still affect you. For instance, if somebody does not pay their warrant, right? They, they, they get arrested on a bench warrant and they're your employee. Their choice still affects you even though they're paying for it, right? Because you're paying for it too, aren't you? These kind of choices are all around us. In Ferguson right now, there are people that have chosen to protest what they think is injustice. And many of them have chosen to break into people's stores and steal in protest of injustice. I think it's a pretty poor choice. Pretty, pretty sad choice. People make choices every day. And they affect more than just you. The second choice in the Bible is in Genesis 13. We're going to cover that one in depth today. And yet, I want to get to another one first to give you scope. Let me just say in Genesis 13, 11, the second time the word Bahar appears in the Scripture, it says, so Lot chose for... What's that word? Lot chose for himself. Lot made a careful examination and then chose for himself. This is indicative of a war that's inside of us. There are wars in the heavenly realms based on choices, and there are wars inside of you based on your choices. Sometimes there's consequence for the choices. Sometimes those consequences have long-lasting ramifications in many people's lives. The third time the word choice appears in the Hebrew language, Bahar, is Exodus 17, starting in verse Eight. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, by the way, this is the first time Joshua appears in all of the Bible. The reason that Yeshua, Hoshea, salvation appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The shadows and types for Jesus are endless. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. This is indicative of God's choice to solve both of the previous choices. There was a war in the heavenlies, and we're still reaching those ramifications. We're benefiting good and bad from them. There is a war inside of us, a war with self, and we are still being affected by those things. And so our God made a choice. He chooses some of us. He chooses some of our men to fight a battle to undo those choices. Can you say amen for that? Are you the recipient of a sinful nature? I mean, as soon as you were two years old, I mean, anybody that wants to argue about original sin has not had children or has not paid attention to them. When a child can speak, they lie. The very best of us do. When, when you give a child an ice cream cone and then give the same ice cream cone to their sibling next to them, they want both. We're the recipients of other people's choices. But in the same way that sin had a legacy, righteousness has a legacy. Jesus chose the will of the Father over every other thing, and that leaves for us a legacy. And he will choose us to make those same choices. Somebody say amen one more time. Amen. Let us talk about choices for a second with Lot. <clears throat> Actually, let's look at the consequence of a choice first. Deuteronomy 30 Get there, get there, get there, get there. Somebody say there. 
Not just Dustin, somebody else, where are we at? In Deuteronomy 30, starting in verse 19, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. The Lord set before us life and death. Blessings and, what's that last word? If you think of curses as mystical objects, like Casper the ghost that comes and settles on a shoulder, I believe you've misunderstood something. A curse is the natural response to disobedience. It's not mystical when gravity acts upon an object as it steps out of an airplane. It is a natural response. We're not cursed because somebody had a voodoo doll somewhere and stuck it with a pin. Our choices have consequences that can be called curses. God set before us blessings, and he set before us curses. He set before us life, and he set before us death. And then he says, now choose, what's the next word? You have the freedom to make the right choice. God is pro the right choice. He sets both before us and then tells us, by the way, it's not a nut and shell game. This is the one you should pick. I don't know if you've ever been swindled out of money. I suspect you have if you've been around very long. Most of us don't tell those stories. You tell the story, you got the car for the cheapest price, you won the bet, you ran the fastest race, and you threw the longest pass. We're the heroes of our own stories. I understand. But if you've ever really been beaten out of some money before, you know what it's like to feel like, I made a terrible choice there. Imagine that our king has set before us life and death, and you're like, I don't know, it all looks so similar to me. And he goes, hey, hey, that one. And then we still choose death. How sad is that? And yet it goes on the majority of the time for the majority of the people, for the majority of the world, even inside the church. That is a sobering thought, is it not? He is not trying to trick us. He has laid out his word to tell us the right way to live. He's laid out his word. He says, now choose life so that you and your children may live because your choices affect the generations to come. How important is it that we make a good choice? Oh, my goodness. If I had known the day that I stuck my hand into the table saw, what that was going to cost me, if I had known the day that I nail-gunned my left finger to the fence, what that was going to cost me, if I had known the day that I was working on that upper control arm and knocked the tip of my pinky, bone and all, off of my hand, you know, I might have made a different choice. The God's honest truth is, I didn't know. In all three cases, I was trying to do something good. In the first, I was building a pulpit. In the second, I was building my neighbor's fence. And in the third, I was fixing an old degenerate man's car because he couldn't do it himself. If I knew what the cost was, I might not have done it. We're told in the Bible what the cost is. We are told where life is, and we're told what the benefits are. We simply choose not to think about our choices. Do you know in the Bible that's not even possible? I just showed you the word bahar means that you have carefully contemplated and then made your choice. 
The Bible language does not even have the concept of a thoughtless choice. Is that crazy? Let us look at Genesis 13. I want to examine Lot's choice because it has the most to do with you and I today. Are you with me this morning? It is not my desire to beat you into the earth today. I actually want us to contemplate the way out. When we look at our choices, most of the time, we comfort ourselves with things like hindsight's 2020. We comfort ourselves with the thought that the value of our experience now is, is helping us make better choices. But the reality is, in most cases, God has shown us ahead of time what the choice is. We did not seek his will concerning it. Oh, man, have I had some bad ones. I signed a property bond one time for a young man that said he was interested in Jesus. His interest in Jesus lasted about as long as it took me to bail him out with my house on the line. You remember that, Matthew? When pastors have to go on a manhunt like they were bounty hunters with a roll of duct tape and a Bible to retrieve a fugitive from justice to save a house, you made a bad choice. Lot makes a bad choice. In Genesis 13, starting in verse 10, Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. I'd like you to think on this for a second. Lot makes a choice that forever determines his destiny. Abraham also makes a choice that furthers his destiny. One man ends up as a man of infamy and the other the father of nations. One man inherits the world and the other inherits a cave best known for incest. It is an incredible choice that lays before them. But what does it look like? It just looks like a choice over real estate, doesn't it? It just looks like a choice maybe for what is best for you versus what is best for someone else. How many of our choices in life have at the very heart of them selfishness versus sacrifice? I can't tell you the cost of selfishness. I can't tell you because the Bible so elucidates that principle. It so expounds on that principle that nearly every sin that men have committed ultimately goes back to being selfish. Wanting what we want when we want it. Wanting it now. Not being able to wait. Being willing to deny someone else that. And yet we're pretty sure that we're inherently good people. Let us look at how Lot made this choice. It says that Lot looked... And then Lot chose. And then Lot departed. And then Lot lived among. And then finally, he lived nearest Sodom. You can find all of those things in those two verses. 
Lot looked, Lot chose, Lot departed, Lot lived among. And then finally made his home near the first city that was called exceedingly wicked in the Bible. Can I say that what you look at will determine what you choose? I heard a testimony not long ago. A brother was doing very good. He was tempted to look at something that he shouldn't while he's staring at a computer. And so he turns off the computer and he walks away. And my question is, why are you at the computer in the first place? How many times are you going to be able to look at something before it causes you to have a bad choice? Saints, we need to be careful what we cast our eyes on. Do you know that Job made a covenant with his eyes to not look at anything that was unclean? You are bound to run into pollution in this world. It's everywhere. And if the first century writers called it pollution, what do you think it is now? But the psalmist said, set no unclean thing before your eyes. You are bound to run across things that you can't help but have to consider and in the name of Jesus turn down. But there's a big difference between coming across it while you're doing God's will and setting it before your own eyes. I'm not going back to the movie theme again, except for this small thing. Be very careful what you set before your eyes. When you have a choice to contemplate the character of God and you instead choose to go contemplate the character that Hollywood is trying to develop in you. Those choices have consequences. Now, I am not so holy that I would say we don't watch movies. Some of you would definitely say that you don't watch movies. Other of you watch them all of the time. I'm simply saying, why would you choose a movie over something that God designed for you to have that day and your brothers and sisters sacrificed to be there? But now I have to leave that topic because I told you I would. Choices have consequences. It starts with what we look at. Looking leads to choosing. Choosing can lead to departing. One of the real problems in the church today is we've lost our fear of God, so we allow people to choose things that God detests and that God hates, and we still say he accepts you anyway. We still say it's okay for you to fellowship here, but Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, if a man is sexually immoral, you cannot even eat with that man. He said, I'm not talking about the world. You'd have to leave the planet for that. I'm talking about those who claim to be brothers. In the first century, the stakes were so high that they knew sin caused you to have to depart from each other. Today, it's not uncommon to see two brothers, two cousins, two friends. One looks at the other one and says, hey, man, I know what you're going through, and no matter what, I'm with you. I say, hell no. I'm not with you no matter what. I'm with Jesus no matter what. If you choose to go to hell, you will have to do it alone. I will not follow you there. That has been lost in our society. And because it's been lost in our society, wickedness and righteousness stand next to each other and sing the same hymns. Guys, that hurts. It hurts, and let me tell you why it hurts. It's harder to associate the consequence with the choice. It looks like it was just random chance. After all, we were all together mostly doing mostly the same things, but we were not making the same choices. 
I was listening to a famous economist speak on budgeting. And it's funny because the person that he was speaking with acted as if some mysterious force acted upon them to break their budget. And she refused to admit that it was a choice that she made. The man said, math does not lie. Mathematics is not subjective. And she could not see it. And as a pastor, I was no longer thinking about mathematics. I was looking at the results of our choices, and we fail so many times to see where they have come from. I'd like to talk to you about the power of these choices. Start with Deuteronomy 19 with me. Say there when you were there. There's a principle of escalation in the Bible. The Jews understood it so well, they actually had a teaching title for this. They call it Calvacomer. The idea of Calvacomer is the Hebrew expression that literally means the small or light and the heavy, and that the small and the light lead to the heavy or big. In Deuteronomy 19.11, it says, But if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults, and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, and then it goes on to describe it, the Jews looked at this and said, wow, we would never be guilty of murder if we were not first guilty of hating in our hearts. Jesus picks up on this topic in Matthew 5, and in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27, look at what he says. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus understood that what a man looked at would determine ultimately what he did. And in an interesting Hebraic twist of a teaching or turn of a phrase, he said, if you think that it's bad to tear out an eyeball, how much worse would it be to go to hell? I'd rather you tear out your eyeball than go to hell. He was teaching us an attitude, an attitude that choices start somewhere. Am I the only one in here that has made a terrible choice and then presented it to my friends like, hey, you know, I don't know. It just, it just kind of happened. <laughs> that, that happens when we don't like the consequences and we would rather not be responsible for the choice we made. Can we all say that we made choices and the consequences are up to our necks? I mean, Ezra and Nehemiah, have you ever heard those guys pray, read, read their prayer? Some of the greatest in the Bibles, look at the ninth and 10th chapters of those, those books. He says, our sins are piled up to our necks, Lord. And they found mercy because they acknowledged that their choices were their choices. And the consequences of those choices were also theirs. And they needed mercy. It's very hard to find mercy when you don't first find yourself guilty or in need of it. We had an amazing prophecy out of Hosea 10:12 during the service. Right, right on the target. Plowing up that fallow ground. 
Wednesday night, we had an amazing message out of Hosea 3 that Brother Alex preached about. All of these have a theme, saints. We need to examine our hearts and our lives. We need to test ourselves to see that we're in the faith. And then, having been tested, when you receive the assurance from heaven, no one can take it from you. No circumstance can take it from you. One of the themes of Hosea between the third chapter and the tenth chapter, over and over and over, is God says, I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and you still made bad choices. You still went, I don't even want to say what their choices were. You still did bad things over and and you would not admit it. Some of you have, hey, who in here has grandchildren? Anybody got great-grandchildren? <laughs> Amen. That's a blessing. If you've lived long enough to have children and grandchildren, you know that there are going to be terrible choices along the way. You know it because you've already been there. You're not waiting to crush somebody when they make a terrible choice. You're actually hoping to help them avoid it. But how did you learn to avoid it? Because you usually made a bad choice. I I know a man who recently ordered something on the Internet and did not check the correct box and did not print a receipt (laughs) and did not email himself a confirmation. Consequently, when it did not come in, he didn't know who to call. They had his money, but he didn't have the product. And then finally, when he figured out where to call and what to do, he found out it had been delivered to the wrong address and was no longer there. We live in a time where if a package comes to the wrong house, it doesn't necessarily mean that they will pick it back up and send it to whom it belongs. (laughs) They might simply put it on eBay. But I bet he didn't make that choice again. It was costly. Have you made such costly mistakes in your life that you will never go in that area again? And let me ask you, have you made choices that have such high cost but you keep making the same choice. It should never be the job of Christian ministries to alleviate all consequence of choices. Sometimes the pain of our choices cause us to stay clear of that area forever. Now, this whole church knows where I teach and stand with alcohol. If they don't know, then listen to the message Red Herring. It'll clear it up for you. However, can we all say that if you are a drunkard and your family are all drunkards and your kids are showing that tendency that probably you should never have anything to do with alcohol? Isn't that just wisdom? And yet every drunk man I've ever talked to said he was not drunk. It's easy to see with mind-altering substances. It's much harder to see with mind-altering sin. I'd like to talk to you about this phrase. This phrase gets me in the 13th chapter of Genesis. We're going to be there for a minute, so go ahead and put your finger there. While you're there, in the 13th chapter, listen to what God says. It is stunning. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zor. Look at what's in parentheses. This is what's called an editorial note. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. In other words, the editor did not want you to miss something. Lot's making a choice here. And it's not going to be, that's chapter 13, it won't be for six more chapters before you're going to see the results of that choice. So I'm telling you, 
Lot just chose this area, and it's before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what was the area like before God destroyed it? There's three descriptors used. It's well-watered. It's like the garden of God. And it was like Egypt. Come on. Amen, Egypt. These were the three highest compliments you could give an area. Like the garden of God, like Egypt, the most fertile places on the planet, the best, well-watered. Of course, that's why he chose it for himself. Do you know what that area is like today? This is the Dead Sea. In Hebrew, sometimes it's referred to as the Araba, other times the Salt Sea. Sometimes the Eastern Sea. The Mediterranean is to the west. This would be to the east, just slightly east of Jerusalem. The Dead Sea is world-renowned because of its characteristic. What a bad choice. You could turn something that is well-watered, something that is like the Garden of God, something as beautiful as Egypt, into the Dead Sea. How dead is the Dead Sea? Well... Josephus referred to it as the asphalt sea. Now, this is in a time period before we had state workers and orange barrels everywhere. Asphalt refers to a substance found in the area called bitumen, and it's where you make tar and pitch, mortar, that, not, not mortar like bricks, the kind like you used on the uh, Tower of Babel. Josephus called it the asphalt sea, the world's oceans are 4 to 6% salt. Anybody ever got salt water in your eyes? Is that, is that a blast? I mean, do you just love it? Anybody want to lay down and let's pour salt water in your eyes? 4 to 6%. New Unger's Bible Dictionary says that the Dead Sea is actually 30 to 33% salt. It's been observed that live fish enter the Dead Sea through its tributaries and they die immediately upon arrival. There is no form of known life that exists in the Dead Sea. And by the way, when you think of crossing a river like Jordan, you remember in, in the book of Joshua, they crossed uh, over opposite Jericho and the water was cut off and it stood up in a heap. And do you remember that it was flood stage when that happened? You can read about it in... Joshua 3.16, right around there. It says that it was cut off and it flowed all the way down to the Arabah, the Dead Sea. In other words, the water stopped flowing and what was left flowed down into the Dead Sea and there was dry ground there. Do you know how much water enters the Dead Sea every single day? 6,000 tons of water every day. That's what God stopped to allow Israel to cross by. But see, all of that water flowing in with nothing flowing out has caused something. The Dead Sea is so mineral rich that it's toxic. It's been rumored that birds in flight over the Dead Sea fall out of the air. Now, that's not entirely true. It depends on how high they are. It depends on so many other things. But it's, it has been observed. When fish enter it, they die immediately. A choice that is so bad that the place on the planet that represents that choice causes death to anything that touches it. 
When you think of the Dead Sea, it's not a small body of water. It's 53 miles long. Yeah, it's down there. 53 miles long. And at its widest places, it's about 10 miles wide. Because it's not the same width everywhere, if you begin to do the math and careful calculations, it's about 300 square miles. So it, it, it varies from a mile wide to 10 miles wide, but it's about 53 miles long all of the time. You know, most of the time to find the depth somewhere is pretty easy. If you want to find the depth in the ocean, now we can do it with sonar, you can do it with so many things, but the old-fashioned way would be to drop a weight and a rope over the side, right? If you were to try to take the depth of the Dead Sea and you did it every year, it would be different. It'd be different for two reasons. One is the evaporation there dramatically affects the water table. It's all in and no out. So it is simply a bucket that is being evaporated all of the time. But that's not the biggest problem. It's still sinking. Geologists all agree. When they look at it, the shape of the rocks that are around it the depths and the soundings are constantly changing because not only does this sea sit at 1300 feet below sea level when you're standing on its banks but it's at least 1300 feet deep in the deepest parts and still getting deeper is that where you would want to live in the place that is sinking the place that is all in and no out Lot's choice was selfish, and the Dead Sea is a selfish body of water. And because of it, everything around it stinks. While we think of still sinking, could we put Proverbs 16, 25 on the screen? It's the one that everyone quotes, but no one considers. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Lot thought he was just doing what seemed best, but Lot didn't consider what was best for Abraham. Lot didn't consider what God's will was. He simply looked with his eyes and he chose. How important is it, friends, that we surrender our choices to the Lord? While you're in Proverbs, go ahead and go to Proverbs 30 and verse 12. Those who are pure in their own eyes and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Have you ever noticed that it's very difficult to get cleansed when you think you're already pretty pristine? One of the things that the Dead Sea is just brutal for is you can see it in this picture over here. In this picture over here, can you tell how blue the Dead Sea is? Does that look beautiful? If you were in this area, say the Negev, that's what you're looking at that looks almost white is desert can you imagine that you have traversed the desert and you look up and you see the crystal blue waters of the Arabah and you run over and you plunge your face into it and begin to drink guys I've been in it twice you can't even get your body under it the salt causes you to be so buoyant that you can literally lay down and read a newspaper on top of the water that's not a joke. That's the truth. It has the consistency of glycerin or, or oil. It looks pure to everyone around it until you taste of it. Oh, wow. This is so much like the American church. Our houses are pretty. Our cars are pretty. Our dress is pretty. 
But the fruit of our choices is being concealed by everything else. And when you ask people, why is your life a wreck? They can't tell you. The whole world's mourning Robin Williams right now. We should mourn the loss of all life. I don't want to trivialize that at all. But he made his choices. And his last one was a doozy. Money did not make him happy. Fame did not make him happy. Celebrity status everywhere in the world and more movies than I have fingers did not make him happy. The truth is when life and death was set before him, he chose death not just in the end, he chose it all of his life long. We have choices around us. Matthew 7, 13 speaks about the narrow path and the broad path. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to most people choose wrong. And it's not because God deceived them. It's not because he didn't set it out. It's not because he didn't give them the answer to the multiple choice question. He did all of the above. But many are going to enter the broad path. Let me ask. I saw a Facebook post from someone that I love. And it said, in prophecy fashion, don't grieve over losing your children. Don't grieve over losing your grandchildren. All those that have been stripped from your life, don't let that bother you because God has simply eliminated them from your life to take you to a higher plane. What absolute dribble? What absolute dribble that we could look at a life that has been separated from children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, everyone they know, and blame that on God? Sometimes division comes based on our choices. That happens. But can we say it's data denial if your life is surrounded by destruction, but we claim that we are making God's choices and in the narrow way? See, sometimes this is simply an excuse to avoid having to deal with the choices that we've made. I want you to hear how Paul writes this to the Romans. It'll be in the sixth chapter. Say there when you're there. Sixth chapter, grab the 20th verse with me. He says it so matter-of-factly. Verse uh, 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things that result in death? But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. We all have been involved in things that the result of were death. The famous scripture at the end of this, the 23rd verse, is the wages of sin are death. Let me ask you, church, are you experiencing an abundant life? Do you feel right with the Lord most of the time? When you pray, do you feel like he favors you, like you are his favorite? Do you feel the radiance of his glory on you? 
His desire is that you would feel like you were his man of power for the hour. He died to set you right in his presence so that you could come to his throne with confidence. He did not make us to walk around in a dead sea like fashion. There's a battle going on. I can see it, and I wish I didn't see as clearly as I do in some of you. The battle looks like the very first war that was ever fought between geopolitical powers. You know, undoubtedly there were many battles before Noah, but they weren't recorded. And after Noah, I'm sure that there were many battles before Abraham, but they're, they're not recorded. The first geopolitical battle, nation against nation, that we see in all of the Scripture is in Genesis 14. And in Genesis 14, the site of the battle, oddly enough, is the Dead Sea. They call it the Valley of Sidim. You can turn to Genesis 14. In Genesis 14, there are four kings that take their stand against five. You'll have trouble pronouncing every name, but that's not the point. In the third verse, look at this. All these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. That's where the location is. I want you to see what happens as they do this, though. These kings go out to fight. And look at verse 13. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. First time that he's called the Hebrew in the Bible. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive... Where you choose to live may determine the rest of your life. How many times have you heard you can go to church anywhere? <laughs> Tell that to Lot. How many times have you heard God will bless you wherever you are? Uh, Tell that to Lot. This choice has caused him to be captive. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. In the preceding verses, something that happened when these kings went out to fight is they fell into tar pits. You can read it yourself. You all have Bibles. Not only did we fight battles with heavenly powers and the choices they've made and are trying to involve you in, we fight battles inside of us that have to do with selfishness. Our God has chosen us to solve those two issues. He wants to pour His Spirit into us so that He can again make the choices for us and we don't make them for ourselves. One of the real hazards in hanging out in a place like the Dead Sea, a land of selfishness, is there's tar pits everywhere. See, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I was just walking in the wrong place and happened to fall into a tar pit. Does that sound like something anybody wants to do? Fall into a tar pit? Have you ever seen the little birds that are covered in it after oil spills? What's a bird supposed to do? Can they? You can't either. One of the reasons that it's so hard to get worship off the ground sometimes, one of the reasons it's so hard to get prayer off the ground is not that he's not willing to meet with us, it's that you don't feel worthy to meet with him. And you don't because you've been swimming in tar pits calling at the pool of Shalom. Guys, does, does your life look like the Dead Sea? Do you know somebody's life who looks like the Dead Sea? 
It's pretty on the outside, but the truth is there's conflict underneath. It's sinking every day a little lower, and the whole time on the surface it looks exactly the same. I'm a pastor. I can spend a little time with some of you, and I can feel it. Lower today than yesterday. Lower this week than last week. I'm wondering how long before you'll let the grace of God save you out of this. And you usually say things like, I'm just going through some stuff. No, you're not. You're sinking in it. So, oh, well, I just, you know, we, we all got our, our struggles. Yes, it's a choice. It's a choice. And we make it every day, and they have consequences. How many of you would like to lead people? Four, five of you? More. More. The longer we wait, the more hands that goes up. Your choices, if you're leading people, affect an awful lot that come after you. Have you ever considered what happened if I just didn't feel like coming today? I looked outside and said it was raining and, you know, I broke an eyelash and the injury was too severe for me. How would that affect you if you showed up and your leaders didn't open the doors? What would you think? Would you tolerate it? Abram fought for his nephew, Lot. He fought for him. Lot didn't deserve it. But I, could we put the map on the screen again? I, I want to show you, and I'm going to teach this on Monday night too, but those of you that aren't able to make it, I want you to get this. Uh, do you see the Salt Sea? This is the area of the battle. At the very top of your screen, I put a box that says Damascus. That's where Hobath is. This is way over 100 miles. Abram went over a hundred miles doing battle with four kings that the previous five kings could not supplant. In other words, five kings go to battle against four. Wouldn't you think five would win? They didn't. They got it handed to them. They fell into tar pits. Abram, by himself, with the 318 men in his house because he's right with God, travels over a hundred miles beating them down the entire way. He chased them right out of his promised land because he wasn't going to tolerate that in the place God gave him. Come on, church, can you hear me? There are some things we should not tolerate in the house of God. And whether you got to go 10 miles, 2 miles, or 100 miles, when it comes down to it, what's the difference between Abraham's choice and Lot's choice? Lot chose for himself. I want you to pick up with me with this little oath that Abram makes. This is Genesis 14, starting in verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram witch. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten. Both men look towards Sodom in their lives. Both men got to glance at this area before the results of their choice were evident. Before it was destroyed, while it looked like the garden of God, while it still looked like Egypt, in other words, while it was still an attractive thing, and one said, I will choose that for myself. And the other one says, when I looked at it, I took an oath before God. I will never take so much as a thread out of that place. 
You know what? Lot was offered it and he jumped on it. Abraham hadn't even been offered it yet and he made an oath before God that if that day ever came, he wouldn't take so much as a thread. Now we learn something about our choices. If you wait till the moment of temptation to make your choice, you've already lost. You need to make your choice before you ever face it. Are you hearing me? Guys, this, these are pearls. If you make your choice now when you face it tomorrow, there's no thought, there's only obedience. If you wait till that moment, well, you can look in your rearview mirror and see what that does, huh? We need to make up our mind. You need to figure out where you stand. We need to be men and women of deep holiness, uh, an absolute conviction before our God that we know where we stand before we have to stand in that place. If you don't make up your mind now, you may find the influences upon you in the moment too much for you. This pastor has drawn his line in the sand. And I've taken my oath before God. Some things are simply not negotiable. There is no place in all of the Bible that has a sadder story than the Dead Sea. It's sunk and sinking. It is the recipient of all the goodness of Israel. Four rivers flow into it, and yet it produces no life. You remember the fig tree that didn't produce figs, what Jesus did to it? What about an entire ocean with not one live fish? You feel like you're hopeless? We don't admit to that in church very often, but we say, you know, I... I'm doing, I'm doing better. You know what better means? I found a more tolerable level of sin. I'm doing better. I'm doing better means I've gone longer since my last failure, but I know another one is right around the corner. That's what better means. We get to feeling hopeless. We say, it's been this way. It's always going to be this way. This is just part of my existence. Jesus Christ came to change your existence. He came to change your existence. There was a time period in my life where I was incapable of a single decent thing. At only 18 years old, destruction followed me everywhere I went. A pagan descended from pagans. And Jesus Christ changed my existence. There is no bigger landmark on the planet that symbolizes a bad choice than the Dead Sea. If you don't agree with me yet, I can talk until you do. Why don't you just nod and say you're right, Pastor? Okay, given that that's true, is there anything that's outside of his touch? Is there anything that is so far gone from him that it can't live again? If there was one body of water on the planet, I would say would never support life again. I would have to say that it was probably the Dead Sea. Let's take a step back. Where was Jesus killed? Really, one whisper? Where was Jesus killed? Outside Jerusalem. Jesus was killed in the religious capital of the world at the hands of the most religious people in the world, on the most religious day in the world. 
For this reason, preachers for 2,000 years have described that land as hopeless. Pharisees now no longer mean a religious leader. It actually in our, in our dictionaries can, can mean hypocrite. Hopeless, written it off. But God says Jerusalem is going to come to life again. God says his people are going to come to life again. In fact, look at Luke 24 with me. In Luke 24, starting in verse 47, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Where? Beginning in Jerusalem. He picks the place that was the furthest from him in that second and says it starts here. All good things flow right out of Israel. Does anybody remember why he picked Israel? Because they were the weakest and the smallest. Deuteronomy 4 says it. Deuteronomy 7 says he set his affection upon them. And you say, why? Why Jerusalem? The Lord loves an underdog story. Our God is obsessed with the underdog story. This is why 318 men along with one man of faith can go rout four kings. This is why little David can stand before a giant and he can cut off his head and carry it back as a trophy. This is why Jehoshaphat can face a vast army and barely have to lift a finger and they get destroyed. This is why Hezekiah can face Sennacherib and, and come out on top. Our God loves the underdog story. If you sat while we were talking about the Dead Sea and said, well, my life's not that bad, well, you're probably excluding yourself from God's underdog story because he likes to take the saltiest dog out there and make them saints. That's what he likes to do. It showcases his glory. It showcases his power. It showcases his mercy. He's doing that because he wants the rest of you to make a good choice. He wants you to see the life that comes from it. Turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Say there when you're there. We're going to be there for a minute. In Zechariah, we need to turn to the 14th chapter. In the 14th chapter, pick up with me in verse 8, 6, 7, 7, verse 7. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes, there will be light. On that day, living water, say living water. living water. Living water will flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and the winter. Can I tell you right now, out of Jerusalem, there is no fresh water that is flowing out of Jerusalem to the eastern sea, the Dead Sea, and to the Mediterranean. But in that day, God will change the flow. Some of you need to change your flow. You need to say, Lord, I need a unique day. I need a day 
Let's call it today since Hebrew says today is the day of salvation. I need a change of flow. I've been way too salty. I've produced way too much death. I'm known for you. In fact, I reside in your land. I'm within your allotted territory, but I'm not producing what you produce. Can you change my flow? Is there nobody's heart in here that wants a change of flow? How about Zechariah 13.1? On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do what? Cleanse them from their impurity. Our God is not only able to change your flow, cause you to go in a new direction, in a new way. He's able to wash you while you do it. He's able to open up to you a spring where you thought there was only a dry ground. He's able to wash away your broken cistern and replace it with a spring of living water. He will cleanse you from your impurity. You know why? The same God that set before you Blessings and curses said, choose life. And he's there to help you. He hadn't left you to make your own choices. He's left you to submit your choices to him. I'm pro right choice. Turn with me to Ezekiel. When you get to Ezekiel, find the 47th chapter. This is quoted in Pentecostal circles. This is quoted in charismatic services. And I've heard it all of my life, and it was not until about five days ago. We're going to be in 47, starting in verse 1. It was not until a few days ago that I caught this location. 47 verse 1, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced the east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside of the outer gate facing east and the water was flowing from the south side. Don't get lost in our directions. Imagine that you walked out of a building, you stood on the side of it so that you could see what was coming out of the south of it. That's all that's happening. Right out of the throne of God, something is flowing from the south. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits. Then he led me through water that was ankle deep. How much water would have to come out of a throne for it to be ankle deep in a land? He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee deep. Somebody saying he's getting deeper in here. During worship, it felt dry in the beginning. And then it felt ankle deep. And then somewhere around a prophecy, it started to get knee deep. And right about the time I thought I would drown in the river, it was time to preach. Our living God will pour as much on you as it takes. You just have to be willing. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to my waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? 
What a question. Ezekiel has just been ankle deep, knee deep, waist deep. Now it's a river that he cannot cross. He would drown in it. And what is the question? Do you see this? Do you think the angel's trying to draw his attention to it? Do you think he's trying to say, mark this? It's going to affect your choices. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern region and goes down to the Arabah where it enters the sea. That word is Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the water becomes... There is a river of God that will flow into the lowest place on the planet that is sunk and still sinking, a water body that cannot support life. And it says that God will flow out of His throne into that. It starts as a trickle, but it ends up a torrent. If you can read Hebrew here, it's not even a river. It's rivers, plural. It says that the water there becomes fresh it's not fresh yes it's fresh of course uh, far be it for me to argue with a translator and yet the word is rafa it's fresh because he healed it oh do you need to change your flow could we put that in the amplified on the screen i want you to see how they said it then he said to me these waters pour out towards the eastern region and go down into the araba the jordan valley and on to the dead sea and when they shall enter into the sea, the sea of putrid waters. Man, if your old life is not putrid to you, it's hard to get fresh water. You don't know you need it. So, oh, yeah, that was a long time ago, Pastor. That was, that, was, that was a putrid life. The unfortunate thing is parts of that putrid life are still chasing after me. And I still need a fresh filling. I don't know what's worse, to be a cessationist that believes that you cannot get filled after you got filled once or to be a Pentecostal that believes you cannot get filled after you got filled once. What do you mean? Well, the cessationist says you get all that you'll ever get right at salvation. I mean, you got, you got the whole package, except they don't live like it. And the Pentecostal says, no, 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 we believe in a second experience. You got to get baptized in God's Holy Spirit. And we all go, yay, except it's a one-time experience. You may have spoken tongues one time. Good for you. I need this fresh water to wash out putrid waters in me every day. It's healing. His presence is healing. It'll take what was salty and make it fresh. It's healing. I want to be healed by God's waters. If you could pick up then in verse 9. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Iglam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will never become fresh, for they will be left for salt. There will always be those who will not get in the flow of the river. 
And God allows them. Read Isaiah 66. He leaves them in that place as a reminder for all time. I held out my hands. And I showed mercy to those who came to me. And some would not do it. Verse 12 is the prettiest verse that I have read this week. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves. Their leaves. Their leaves. You can have made your life an asphalt sea. You can have surrounded your house with tar pits. Everything you've ever done could have been selfish. But if the flow of God begins to fall upon you, you can support life. Teams of living creatures can swarm in what God gives you. You can produce an oak of righteousness that's leaves are for the healing of the nation. I know what it is to be fist fighting in a parking lot one month and be worshiping at the altar of God the next. A completely new kind of body of water. I would like to remind you of John 4. In John 4, Jesus meets a woman at the well. How far from God was she? You can answer me. She's pretty far off. She had some adultery problems, didn't she? She had some location problems. She's living among backsliders, living among people. They were changing the customs of God. At one point, she has to be reminded salvation is from the Jews. She tried to boil it all down to just uh, a choice. Your people worship there, my people worship here. And there are consequences for your choices. But I want you to understand when the Lord saw softening in her heart, in the fourth chapter in the 10th verse, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you. Our God can change your flow. Our God can wash away bad choices. He can remove salty stains. He can take a salty dog and make you a saint, a priest, a kingdom of priests. Oh, Jesus, that this would happen. That you would begin to hunger for it. Imagine that you had wandered in that desert and you bent down into the beautiful salt sea, not knowing what it was, and took a giant gulp of 33% salt water. How thirsty then would you be for fresh water? Church, we need to get thirsty. Are you thirsty? Have you just learned to come to church and do your part? Or do you really understand your situation? See, I have victory over many areas in my life, and I got another few that are dogging me, and I'm going to flood them with the altar of God. made some really good choices in my life. When I fell in love with Jesus, he told me who to marry. So I don't know the pain of divorce that my family has been plagued with. 
When he told us to have children, we did. So I don't view my children as burdens. To me, they're a gift from God. When he told me their names, that's what I named them. And I waited in all of those things for him to make the choice for me. You have pain in your choices? Are you hurt over your marriage? Hurt over your children? God's able to make fresh water flow into those situations. He is. He said, but I've asked and I've tried and somehow or another it just jumped back on my back. Then you jump back in the river. He said, well, pastor, you don't understand how hard it is. Of course I do. Of course I do. And what difference would it make for you whether I understood you or not? We seek to be understood all of the time. I, I'm going to tell you, you need to rethink the stuff you put on Facebook. When you just blog out there to the world what a victim you are and then try to tag your last line with something along the lines, but I'm thankful for who he's made me. What a crock. You need the fresh water of God. Quit celebrating the salty seas. You need it. Could we put John 7:38 on the screen? Do I get loud in here sometimes? They moved those speakers in the hopes that I would hear myself and that in hearing myself, I'd bring it down a notch. But on the last and greatest day of the feast in John 7:37, Jesus said in a loud voice, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice. It's almost like he wanted to be heard. It's almost like no matter how much salt was crammed in your ears, how putrefied your seas were, he wanted you to hear him. Jesus stood in a loud voice. If anyone, not a privileged one, not a senator's son, stuck in Credence Clearwater Revival, Anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Let me ask you, who does he turn away? Who does he turn away? If he says anyone who is thirsty, the only ones that don't get to drink are the ones that don't want to drink. So let me ask you, who is responsible for the condition of your life? We are. Own up to it. Stop blaming anyone else. Stop blaming God. Own up to it and ask him. Will you put water into me? Because if you don't, I am going to die in a dry and barren, salty land. Lord, you called me to be full of life, not to be a sardine. I need you. Will you re-wet my soul? So well, I did that, Eric. I did that 20 years ago. I don't go a whole day without doing it again and again and again. You know you have exactly the same salt content in your bloodstream as in the world's oceans? Did you know that? We're inherently pretty salty creatures. We need this fresh flow. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. In the 39th verse, by this he meant... You know what that's like? That's just like saying, I'm going to set before you life and death, Charlie. 
life, death. Choose life. This is just like saying, you know what? If you're thirsty, I'll give to anyone. By this, I mean the Spirit. I mean God is putting His finger on the choice. For me, it's not a theological argument. Do you need to get filled with the Spirit? It's a matter of life and death. For me, it's not a theological argument. Do we speak in other tongues? Do we prophesy? Do we? Those are bare minimum. You got to drink of the Holy Ghost every day or you will be a salty dog. But to the extent we can get what's in His throne to flow inside of us, your putrefied seas will become waters that are healed. We're going to close this message in Revelation 22. Can we put it on the screen? It's Revelation 22, starting in verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where does it flow from? From the throne of God and the Lamb. There is no way to get it except through Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. You must be born again if you want to drink of His river. Down the middle of the great street of the city. If you have a great street in a city, what is it there for? It's for the most people to travel on. I mean, why do you have five-lane roads? Because you want a lot of people to be on them. This river flows right down the middle of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The prophet Isaiah said, Come, all who are thirsty, you can drink without cost. Well, it's because the cost was paid. It's been paid for you. Because God does not want your life as a dead sea. He wants you to be a spring. We won't read every verse in Revelation 22, but you need to understand something. In the last three verses of it, 14, 15, 16, 17, he offers the choice and then says, stick with your choice. If you know the goodness of God and you refuse to drink, he's committed you to your position. Now's the time to repent. If you don't, he says, let the wicked stay wicked because our lives are going to reflect the choices we make. I pray you choose well. Could we stand to our feet?